Well, about a month ago, um, I announced, or maybe it did a little before Christmas, I announced that we are going to be embarking on a journey to see who is Jesus Christ, to harmonize the Gospels, take Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that all you know, tell the story, the truth of Jesus Christ. And you know, some emphasize different points, some you know, give a little bit different angle, look at something. We want to bring those things all together, and we want to answer that question, who is Jesus Christ? I mean, what did his life mean? What are we supposed to learn from the life of Christ? And probably the most important question, how relevant is the life of Christ who lived some 2,000 years ago, how relevant is it to my life in the 21st century? I mean, we all have certain mental pictures when we think about Jesus Christ of, of what he was like. And often those mental pictures, you know, depending on when we were introduced to Christianity, that's how we form those mental pictures. You know, as a child, when they think about Jesus Christ, we think about simplicity. You know, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That simple faith in Jesus Christ. Possibly that picture of a shepherd carrying a, a lamb on his shoulders. We've all seen that picture. Or as adults, we think about the great Jesus. You know, his arms spread tall over the city, looking over the city. And we all have pictures of what we think Jesus Christ is, who he is. We have a tendency then to see Jesus through our culture. And we have a very Americanized point of view as we come to the Bible, we come to the Gospels, and we come to the person of Jesus Christ. And then we have these mental images that movies put into our, our minds of this you know, individual with this long, brown, flowing hair, perfect complexion, you know, clean, calm, serene personality. I also find that we have a totally different perspective as we read Scripture than when these events were actually taking place because we know how it ends. I mean, we read, you know, of the Gospels and we know what's going to be happening. So it tends to kind of alter our perspective just a little bit. We kind of lose just a little bit because we know how it turns out. You know, because of this, we, we tend to lose the intensity of their punch of what was happening and, and what they were supposed to be learning at that moment. Now, some of you here who are sports enthusiasts, uh, you'll remember back in 2003 when Ohio State played uh, the University of Miami for the national title. Um, I mean, they were pretty much underdogs. At that time, Miami University was a powerhouse. Ohio State was young. You know, if, if you remember that game, I mean, it was a tr tremendous game, probably one of the greatest national championships ever. The game went into triple overtime. And I can remember sitting there during the second overtime, if you remember, when Craig Krenzel, who was the quarterback for, for Ohio State, after he, he threw that final pass and it went incomplete on fourth down, they didn't score, the game was over, Miami had won. And, and there were just a few seconds there of just total dejection and, and disappointment and, and, and emotional collapse. And suddenly the announcer says, well, wait a minute, there's a flag on the field. And it was a penalty against Miami. And so, you know, suddenly there was life again. And you all know the end of the story. They go into the third overtime, and Ohio State ultimately wins the national championship. Well, a couple years after that, I was at the Ohio State State 
fair, and there was a booth set up there that was selling memorabilia for, for the Buckeye Nation. And they had a TV, and they were playing that national championship game. I just happened to come across it as they were in their overtimes, and it takes about 15 minutes. And, and I stood there once again, and I watched the end of that game. But it was interesting. I watched it with a whole different perspective. You know, suddenly when we got into, you know, the second overtime and Craig Krenzel threw that pass and went incomplete, I didn't have that same emotion. You know, I didn't have that same letdown because I knew what was going to happen. I knew what was coming pretty soon. They were going to say, you know, there's a flag on the play and, you know, we're going to get to see it again. And I know in the end that Ohio State won. Knowing how something ends, it tends to shade the way that you observe a certain event. And that's one of the disadvantages that we have. I mean, we look at the life of Christ, you know, we view Joseph and Mary and the virgin birth and, and Herod's attempt to kill the children and, and, you know, kill the king of the Jews, you know, the, the family's flight to Egypt. You know, it, it, it loses something to us because we know how it turns out. And it's so easy to miss the depth of what God was teaching and what was actually happening happening during that time. When Christ confronts the Pharisees, you know, we don't see the true dynamics of the situation. We don't see the true power struggle. We know how things end. The cross, the resurrection, all of these things are viewed through the eyes of people who know how it turns out. But what if we could get past that? What if we could get past that unique perspective that we have? What if we could see it through the hearts and the eyes that as it is being unfolded? What more could we learn if we could really put ourselves there in the life of Christ? How could it change our lives? What more would we learn about our faith and what it means to be a child of God? So what we're going to be doing over the next month, it'll probably be three to five months or so, we're going to be looking at the major events in Christ's life. And as we do that, we're going to make an attempt to get us to kind of inject ourselves into the equation. I mean, literally, what would it have been like to, a, to, to be there? What would it be like to be hanging on the edge of the crowd? How would we receive that message that Christ was preaching? I mean, would I have invited him over for dinner? Would I have introduced him to all my friends like Zacchaeus did? Or would I have turned away from him like the rich young ruler did? Would we covertly believe in Jesus like Nicodemus? Or would we boldly proclaim him like the apostles did? We can learn a lot about where we are in our walk with Christ and where we need to be. And that's the goal of, of the series over the next months. Now in John chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 14... It says this, and very familiar with it, we just came through Christmas. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that Word, speaking about Jesus Christ there, we know that, that Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. I mean, literally what that verse is saying is that in Jesus Christ, God stretched out, you know, upon the gurney for us to dissect him, to see him, to scrutinize him. You know, he invited all the skeptics, all the seekers to come. 
and to see the word become flesh. And we beheld, we saw. And that's what I want to invite us to do. For us to see through new, fresh eyes, through a little bit different perspective, to see Jesus Christ. Um, He challenges us to come to know him. Not our orthodoxy traditions, not our flowery fanfare, but the real, genuine interaction with Jesus Christ. And then he says, make your decision. Who is Christ? You see, we need to get back to the real Jesus. We don't need the Jesus that has been molded over 2,000 years of religion. Not the, the Jesus that we have carved out to fit the American dream that we have. But we want to see who is Jesus Christ and what does his life mean to us. And so even if you're a skeptic here today, You say, well, I believe some things of the Bible, but there's other things in the Bible that I have problems with. Even if you're there, I want to invite you to take a genuine look at him, unfettered by all the preconceived ideas that you have about Jesus Christ or maybe that we have heard. You know, let's let's put ourselves, you know, in in 2,000 years ago and walk with Jesus Christ, just as he was inviting people to come to know him and to make that decision concerning him and his person and answer that question, who is Jesus Christ? He tells us in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, it says, therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. These things have been written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you have, might have life through his name. He's inviting you to come to know him, and that in, in knowing him will you put your faith and trust in him and have life in Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus? So that's, that's kind of the journey we're going to be on here for the next month. I don't think you can, anybody, can really escape the reality of Jesus Christ, that, that Jesus is real. We may ignore him. The world may ignore him, not give him the time of day. But, you know, to go very deep, I mean, he is, he is wedged in our lives. He is wedged in our world. I mean, every time, you know, you, you write a check or you sign an important document and you put the date on it, you know, you're, you're declaring Jesus Christ. You have B.C., it's before Christ, A.D., in the year of the Lord. I mean, it's all time is divided in the person of Jesus Christ. I mean, this man who came and declared that he was the Son of God, more has been written about him than probably all the men combined together. There are worldwide holidays that commemorate him. We have Christmas and Easter and Good Friday and, uh, you know, on and on it goes. Even non-believers acknowledge him. Maybe in a negative way, they'll hit their you know, thumb with a hammer and, and you know, they'll, they'll invoke the name of Jesus. They don't yell, Joseph Smith. They don't hit their thumb and say, Mohammed. They don't do that. But they invoke the name of the Son of God. H.G. Wells once said that you can gauge the size of a ship that has passed by the wake it leaves behind. And Christ has left quite a wake. Wars have been fought in Christ's name. Words he's spoken are placed on plaques. Over one billion of the world's population claim allegiance to him. 
Millions of men and women have given their lives in spreading the message and the truth of Jesus Christ. And all of men's efforts to snuff out his impact have only served to fan the flame of the gospel message. So who is this man? Who is this God-man? Who is Christ? That is our goal, to peel back all of the layers of paint that we have slapped on him over the years and to see him in the context in which he came, in which he lived, and in which he died. And so to start out this morning, I want to take our time that we have here and I want to consider the people that he chose to be born into, the race of people that Jesus chose to be born into, the Jewish race. I mean, he is called the king of the Jews. And again, we hear that, we have a tendency to view Christ coming to earth through a Western viewpoint, and thus we miss a lot of what Jesus was trying to teach because he chose the Jewish culture to be the backdrop from which he would reveal himself. And I mean, here he is, the son of God. He could have chosen any people, any time, any culture, any technological advancements that were available to him. He could have chose any time to come. But he chose to come some 2,000 years ago to be born into the Jewish culture. Alone amongst all the people in history, Jesus chose where, when, and who he would be born to. So we're going to take a look at that real quickly this morning. Next week, we're going to look at the time and the place. But today, I want to consider the race. I want to consider the people, the Jewish people that he was born into. Um, When Christ came to earth, we know, and and we looked at this, uh, you know, uh, a few weeks ago, he fulfilled hundreds, hundreds of prophecies that God had given to the Jewish people, prophet after prophet, told of one who had come called the King of the Jews. And they all had their preconceived pictures. Everybody had their preconceived ideas, just like we would, of how the king of the Jews would come. You know, the Christ, in Greek he's called the Messiah. You know, would he come as a conquering king? Some thought he came and he would reestablish the nation Israel. Most people thought he'd come in glory and power and majesty. So, when Jesus Christ chose to be born and how he chose to be born, it said in Matthew chapter 1, verse 20 and 21, But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. You know, that is such a a pastoral term. You will call his name Jesus. And, And we view that name Jesus so differently than they may have viewed it. You know, to us it stirs this emotional response. We think of love. We think about his forgiveness, his warmth, you know, his personalness, his deity. But to the Jews, it was different that his name was going to be called Jesus. Because the name Jesus was a derivative from the name Joshua, which means he shall save. So a lot of people named their children Joshua Joshua or Jesus. And, and they're doing it because they want to proclaim something. We know this is an Old Testament trait. 
You know, Joseph, when he was sold into slavery and, you know, he was put in, you know, prison and ultimately raised to the second in authority in Egypt. Remember, he had children. And the first he named Manasseh, you know, which means God has made me forget all my trouble. And his second was named Ephraim, that God has made me fruitful. We know Abram, God changed his name to Abraham, the father of many nations. So names carried declarations, and the name Jesus was very common to them. Parents often named their children Jesus or Joshua because they were looking for their king. So, so where we see Mary and Joseph giving that name Jesus, since that is such a special name as, as some sort of a sign, you know, how could the people not miss it? His name is Jesus. He's right there. Well, they didn't see it the same as we did. That was a very, very common name. Very familiar in the declaration. Matter of fact, to them, it would have been totally maybe against their perspective of what the name of their king would be. He would have, he would have a glorious name, you know, not a not a common name. Now I have struggled uh, with my name when I was young. Uh, quite honestly, um, growing up, I hated my name. I hated my last name, Marvel. Um, I'll, I'll show you why. Do we have this here? Let's go ahead and play this. This is what I grew up with. <laughs> Brings back horrible memories. And that was my childhood. I'm not kidding you. I would get on the bus, and they would sing this song. All the kids, they were so cruel. And I just hated being called Marvel. But then along came Marvel Comics, and the Marvel Universe, and Captain America, and Iron Man, and Thor. And my name has been redeemed, <laughs> folks. I want to tell I mean, I tell you, I, people ask me my name or I sign my name, and it, it's a convert. Oh, what a cool name that you have. And I mean, it really is foreign to me because, I, you know, names mean something. And, you know, again, to the Jews, the name Jesus, it was common. It was like being called Bob or Sally, you know, that, that we might use today. For them to think that God incarnate would take such a common name you know, it would be ludicrous for, for that to happen. To be born in a common family, to be raised by a common carpenter in an ordinary Jewish family, that wasn't even in their concept of when they were looking for the king of the Jews. So the question we need to ask is, why didn't Jesus come differently? I mean, he chose how he came, he chose where he came, who he was born to, the family, the circumstances, their 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 financial standards. He chose this family. Why? Why didn't Jesus come differently? Why didn't he come born to a royal family where he would have a platform of influence right, right away? Why didn't he choose to be raised by people of influence? I mean, if you really read the Gospels honestly, you see that Jesus goes to, to seemingly great lengths to avoid any of the assumed traditions that we might place on someone who is going to leave such a wide wake in his past and such, have such an impact upon the world. And if we even think about it, wouldn't it have been easier to be 
effective if he had assumed certain stereotypes, you know, played a little bit along with culture and their stereotypes of how he should come and what the king should be like, and wouldn't he have been received a little bit better? I mean, wasn't that the point that he was trying to make here? Why did Jesus come so common? Isaiah 53, verse 2, reminds us that, speaking of Jesus, says he grew up before them like a tender shoot, like a root out of a parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. In other words, if you saw him on the street, there was absolutely nothing in that would even make you take a second glance at him. He came so common. Why would he do that? Why would God go to seemingly great lengths to play down his godness? Wouldn't you think that would kind of be at the forefront of, of, of who he was and, and how he wants to be received? You know, he chooses to be born of a people who are being ruled by the Romans, born to a poor family, growing up in Galilee. Basically, it was rural farming, you know, fishing occupations. He wasn't handsome. He wasn't particularly attractive. I mean, we tend to view Christ coming to earth through the eyes of Christmas and lights and gifts and lots of food and, and, and celebration and laughter. We view his, his coming to earth like that. But again, when, when, when we look at Christ through those shaded glasses, we fall into the traps of what Christ was trying to avoid. You see, through Christ... God is making his appeal to mankind to choose God and choose God alone. Not because of the miracles he does. I mean, God had given miracles in the past, the parting of the Red Sea, the ten plagues, you know, the military victories. He'd done miracles in the past, and, and they hadn't followed after God. Christ does miracles, but not to get people to follow him. Matter of fact, he kind of downplays his miracles. I mean... How many times did you know, he do something and tell them, don't, don't, don't tell anybody about this. Don't spread this around. I mean, that's different than we would. We'd want to get the word out. Certainly his brothers and sisters thought that. He said, you know, you don't go into hiding. You don't do this incognito. Go down to Jerusalem and present yourself. Go to the metropolitan city. But he doesn't. Because Jesus is making his appeal for himself of who he is, not of what he does, not because of his miracles, not because of the religious system. I mean, they had the temple, they had the prophets, they had the, the festivals. That isn't the appeal that he is making here. God's appeal to us is going to be through the cross of Jesus Christ. That is how we come to him. It all hinges on the cross of Jesus Christ. And so Christ comes in the very simplest form. He avoids all the trappings and the superficial commitments that we might want to make to them, that we're following him because he's got a great personality, or he's good-looking, or he's popular, or he's wealthy, or he's a good athlete, or he's a movie star, whatever it might be. He avoids all of those trappings. He comes in the simplest forms, and he demonstrates his love, his passionate love that he has for you and I, and he comes to you only on the basis of that he went to the cross to die for your sins. Because he does not want us to be separated from God. He doesn't want us, our sin, to be that, that, that wedge, that gulf between God and us. And he built that bridge to the cross that through him, 
that we might enter into a relationship with God the Father. Now, a few years ago, I was talking with one of my nephews, actually, at one of our family reunions, and he was telling me about a church that he goes to, a very large church that he goes, was going to at that time down in Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, he told me all about the pastor. You know, over 25,000 people go there. And, and how much he enjoyed going to church. He said, he said the pastor is so humorous. He's so easy to listen to. And the worship, man, he says it's like going to a concert every single Sunday. They had the best of everything. And I know that church that he was talking about. And I know the pastor, not personally, but I know of him. And, and I've read some of the things that he's written. Um, and he's, he's a fantastic pastor. And it's a fantastic church. But as I was talking to my nephew, I, I noticed that he loved his church, loved going to it. He loved his pastor. But in everything that he talked about, he never mentioned Jesus Christ. You know... He never mentioned anything in the Bible about the Bible or prayer or connection to Jesus. And, and so I'm not, you know, God just prompted me to finally ask him, you know, that if you take away the church, you take away the pastor, you take away the worship band, what do you have left? If you take all those things away, in other words, why did Jesus come like he did? Why didn't he come with, you know, the pomp and circumstances and the glory and the you know, fire from heaven. Why didn't he? Because you got to take that all away because he wants us to come to the person of Jesus Christ. Christ came without all the bells and whistles that cause us today to ooh and ah. He presents himself to us, stripped down to nothing, but he gives us this unconditional, sacrificial love and a passion that he has for each and every one of us to have a relationship with us. He calls us to come to him, not because of his power, not because of his miracles, or really even to avoid hell, even though all of those things are true of him. God's appeal is his love. And that was shown to us on the cross, that while we were yet sinners, Jesus died for us. So let me ask you this question. For your own life, and I want you to think in this context here, your own life. If you strip away all the layers of religion that we have placed on Jesus. You know, I love this church. But if you take away the church, if you take away the fellowship and the relationships that we have, and the benefits that we have of being together and, and the friendships, take away the, the fantastic worship and the music that we have, you remove all of that, what do you have left? What is left between you and God? Is it Jesus? Is it purely that relationship, unfettered love relationship with Jesus Christ? His love that he has for you and the love that you have for him and that relationship that you have together? I mean, we wonder how people who lived 2,000 years ago, how do they actually see Jesus and not be able to accept him? I mean, how could they see the miracles? You know, a blind man, he gives them sight back. A lame man causing them to walk. I mean, he takes just a, a couple loaves of bread and he feeds some 25,000 people. How can people not 
see that? How could they not stand on the side and think, this is Jesus and fall in love with him like us? It's because, you know, all of those things, all of the miracles, all of the frills that, that are out there, when you take them away, it's all about Jesus. It's not about those things. And for a moment, I want you to put yourself on the edge of one of those crowds. You're listening to Jesus Christ. We think, man, wouldn't it be great to be there when Jesus was alive, to hear him, to see him? You know, th this man before you, he does miracles, his teachings are powerful. But you got to be honest, he's not exactly what you expected the king of kings to be. He's not expect, you know, what you expected the Savior, the Messiah to be like. The question that they have and the question that we have to answer is, will we accept Jesus on his terms? Will we accept Jesus on his terms? Standing in the crowd, hearing him say, seek ye first the kingdom of God. Will we accept that, that in our lives, that Christ's kingdom, that Jesus Christ is above everything else, that that's my pursuit, that that's my heartbeat, and all these things, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll come later, but right now, as I hear Jesus, and you hear him, are you, would you be the one there to seek his kingdom first? Will you accept it? Will you live it? I mean, it's the same question that we have to answer today. Do we today seek first the kingdom of God? The rich ruler who was told to sell all, because that was, that was the wall between him and God. Everybody else has different walls. But when Jesus would come to you and he would hear Jesus talk about one of the walls that you have, one of your little sacred cows that we all have, do you give it up? Or do you walk away? Christ asked Nicodemus, he was a Pharisee, a proud Pharisee, a high official, an important person in the Jewish, committed, uh, Jewish you know, community, he asked him to set aside all his religious traditions, all of his formalism, and says, have the faith of a child. He says, be born again. Leave all of that. Be born again. If you're Nicodemus, are you going to do it? Have you done it today? When Jesus comes to us with that exact same message, to walk away from all of those stereotypes, all that we hold dear and to say to be started over with him, to be born again, will we follow him? Friends, the church can fail you. Music, it'll fade. Men will, you know, disappoint you. Even our expectation, the miraculous, you know, often disappoint us because God's ways are not always our ways. And he doesn't always heal. He doesn't always move like we would like him to move. But the bottom line is what Je where Jesus wants to interact with you and I today is his love. Christ's love for you. His desire to walk with you through this life. His passion to be your Lord and to be your Savior. That will never change. And that is God's appeal to you today. That was his appeal 2,000 years ago. And that has never changed as he is appealing you through the cross. Now I'm going to ask the worship team to go ahead and come up here. They've got a closing song for us. And I'm going to ask the pianist just to kind of play it because we're going to bow our heads and we're going to do some real soul searching this morning before we go uh, forward.
just a moment, if you just bow your heads with me. Just, I, and I'm just going to ask you to do that. Maybe close your eyes. I just want to talk to you for a little bit. I just want you to block out any other distractions that are going on around you. And I want you to think about your relationship with Jesus Christ and where it is. Maybe it's in the seeking phase and you wouldn't consider yourself yet a child of God and you're still trying to see who this Jesus Christ is. His appeal to you is not this church and how well we do church. God's appeal to you is not me. It's not the worship team. God's appeal to you is the cross. He comes to you solely on that act of love that he would rather die for your sins than live for all of eternity without you. And that is the option and the choice that he has given you to accept him to become your, his Lord, your Lord and Savior, for him to come into your heart and to forgive you. And you can do that today. You can do that right now while you're sitting there. I mean, it's a very simple opening up your heart. God sees it. It doesn't matter what we see. What matters is what God sees. And right now you could open your heart to him and accept him as your Lord and Savior. And if you're a Christian today, I mean, think through our life. Is this all about Jesus Christ here? I mean, we got caught up in the, you know, the frills. And I'm not saying we shouldn't be involved in them. We shouldn't have those. But again, where, where does our relationship boil down to? When, when all the music fades, when the music is gone, is it all about Jesus Christ? When the church isn't here, when the pastors aren't here, when your Sunday school teachers aren't here propping us up, is it about you and Jesus? It's supposed to be. That's where we come and we interact with him. Yes, to be saved at the cross, but as well to know his love for us and his passion that he has for us. And we need to see Jesus in those terms of how he came. Not because of his miracles, not because of his popularity or whatever it might be, but we come to him solely on his love that he has shed on the cross for us, that he gave for you and I. And that's going to make all the difference in how we interact with Jesus. It's going to make a difference this, you know, this day, tomorrow, when you get up and you go to work. You know, that, that first thought of the day, the last thought at night. You know, that Jesus Christ died for me. That's what I mean to God. And so suddenly, to seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, it's not so difficult anymore. You know, worry about all these other things later, but let's get this one right. So, Father, I ask you to just challenge our hearts. Lord, not just today, but Lord, as we go, you know, through the Gospels, help us to, to see you, Lord, just pure Jesus, to understand your teaching, to understand who you were. And I pray whether it's today or whether it's in the weeks to come that if there are any here, do not do not know you as their Lord and Savior, that they will have these questions answered, that you will open their hearts up and they will come to you and find forgiveness of sin. And for us that know you, Lord, that we will find hope on this side of eternity and that it will draw us great comfort whatever it is that we are going through, whether we're on the peak or we're in a valley, that it will be enough that Jesus loves us. Thank you, Father. In thy son's name we pray.